And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the legendary Cood Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stran and Critical Gun for Hire on the M- Gary K. Wolf on the Cood Street Podcast! Hey! Jonathan. How are you, Gary? What, what, critical Gun for Hire? What, you, <coughs> you're my editor, fella. <laughs> well, hang on. Nightshade just announced that you've done... Uh, an introduction or something for the new edition of Brave New Worlds, the John Joseph Adams anthology. So obviously you're a critical gun for how you're writing for everybody, Gary. Yeah, I, I didn't actually, I didn't actually know that was happening. Have um, you done it yet? Well, I wrote. Uh, it, it's an interesting thing. Uh, yeah, they they wanted some questions. They wanted some things that might make it amenable to a teaching uh, text. Yeah. Because uh, dystopia is a very hot thing these days. Uh, and and I, I did some things and I thought this is really dull. <laughs> I emailed them and said, I'm writing stuff, but it's really dull. And they said, send it on anyway. Wow, you're, you're just selling this edition of this book, Gary. I'm, oh, yes. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a terrific, uh, it's a terrific book. People should read all the dystopian stories they can get their hands on. <laughs> well, actually, that leads into a little bit of cross-promotion, Gary. Yes. Because I have another podcast. I'm being unfaithful to you. Again, well, I okay. I'll confess. I wrote a review that wasn't in Locus, so there. I, well, we'll talk about that too. Now that you mention it, we'll we'll have a little chat about being unfaithful because I just started a new podcast with Ian Mond and some other people about ah. about uh, reviewing short stories, a monthly podcast, and it just went live last week. Uh, the last short story uh, podcast. Uh huh. And this month we talked about the August issue of Asimov. So what we're going to do is each month we'll talk about one discrete publication so that we can talk about it in a bit of depth rather than trying to cover all the new short fiction coming out. And next week, or next month, dystopian link, um, we're going to talk about Datlow and Windling's new anthology After, which features other link back to the Cood Street podcast, the Genevieve uh-huh. Valentine story that we talked about when Genevieve was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Yes, excellent. There's some fine stuff in that. And I will... Apart from you know you're being a friend, I think this is a brilliant idea for a podcast. Somebody was twittering, and I can't remember who it was, about the lack of review venues for short fiction. I mean, there, Lois Tilton, there are a few places, but I don't think podcasts devoted to it that I know of specifically uh, has existed. And I myself depend, as you well know, on on you and a few <laughs> other some people who read all this stuff to know what's going on in short fiction. Yeah, I have to say, Gary, we are niche marketing down to a point of possibly unsupportable sort of fi- you know, fine-tuning. But we'll see. Uh, what, what's supposed to happen is come next year. I mean, I did this thing. You know how I get enthusiastic about stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I had this idea we should do a podcast because everyone was saying we're doing the last short story and we never actually get to have the fun part, which is talk about what's great. We're always just out of sync with one another. So I said, well, mm-hmm. we should do a podcast once a month, and we'll talk like this, and we'll get a little roster of people rotating through it. And everyone's going, yep, that's a great idea, that's a great idea, but we're busy, we'll do it next year. And I'm like, but, but it's fun now, while well, it's a new idea. So I said, yeah. to, uh, was talking to, to, to Ian, and he went, well, let's do it now. So what we're doing, actually, is we're doing a pre-season. Do you like that? We're doing a pre-season of the podcast, up until Christmas. And then, in theory, what will happen is the other people will start to dro- come in then. Mm-hmm. So, so we'll see, because then it would be you'd get a, a rotating cast of presenters. That's assuming that that actually happens and people actually remain interested in doing it and it doesn't just devolve into Ian and I doing it anyway. So we'll see what happens. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, the, the only structural flaw in the whole thing for me is that I think I'm the producer of it now, which means oh. I have to do the recording for every episode. And if, if I'm only going to appear on one in every three episodes, as it could be, but... I'm producing every episode. That might become burdensome, so we have to say. Are you going to do things, since you're doing an original story anthology uh, uh, by uh, Dadlow and Windling, are you going to do things like your own engineering, or your uh, Edge of Infinity? I don't think I can. That's where I would have to step out and let other people do it. You know, I, mean, it was, I mean, it's pretty hard to say, hey, I just did this awesome new book, and now I'm going to give you a review of my awesome book that is awesome. Or, even worse, even worse, I'm reviewing my awesome new book. Insert, you know, disclaimer, this comment does not apply to my actual awesome new book. And I will now tell you that story number 11 in the book, actually, I only slipped it in to fill out the book. It wasn't very good. Yeah. See, no, you can't be doing that, so. You did, well, I bet you get a lot of listeners doing that. (laughs) Are you going to cover, okay, here's the other thing that I find difficult. Uh, Are you going to cover short story collections by authors 
which somebody like, for example, Margot Lanigan, who tends to write her stories in her collections, or uh, what's become a very common habit in the last few years of having one original story in a collection of other stories. Well, we, we haven't decided. The idea was that we would just pick a, a publication, and right now, because it's Ian and I, like he picked one, I pick one, he picks one, I pick one, and we'll just go with it as it comes. Um, mostly so that we're rotating through. For example, now that we've done the August Asimovs, I don't know that we'll do another Asimovs. The other thing that we're doing, and this is why this conversation is useful, I'm talking so quickly, sorry. Um, one of the reasons this conversation is useful is that um, it's a preseason and we're kind of fiddling with the format. It's deliberately being put out as a preseason. It's deliberately being um, uh, it's deliberately you know going to be fiddle. We're going to fiddle with the format a little bit. I need to talk to Ian. I mean, I had listened back to the podcast we did and I like it, but I think there's a few things we can do to make it make a bit more sense as we go forward. So it, it, it will evolve. But yes, I mean, I could see us turning around and saying. Kids Johnson has a new short story collection. We'll talk about it, and we'll talk about the whole book. Well, there's, there's a great one of my favorite stories in that collection is original to the collection, or I should say original to her website. But the Bitey Cat? Oh, no, 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 not the Bitey Cat. It's, it's the Lawrence Stern, uh, huh? the, the one with the long, complicated. Time. Did you read her story on was it Clark's World? Oh my God, A Mantis Wives? Hmm. Oh, that's a hell of a story, Gary. I'll look at it. It's, like I say, I wait. I, this is why I need your podcast. I need recommendations. I do. I must say, I like the idea of a preseason. I think we can explain to everybody who asks from now on that we've been <laughs> preseason for two years now. <laughs> 115 episodes of warm up. Absolutely. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I mean, yeah, so you've been off critical gunning for hire. Um, I've, I've got to turn off my email. I just got this this query about this project that is is just not moving forward. I, I, it's totally distracting. Close email. Okay. Um, because that's just another short story project. Because it's busy time. Do you know what's, actually do you know what the thing that's occupying my mind this week, Gary? What, Gary? There's several things, and they're all relevant ish. Um, the big one right now, now that Edge of Infinity is delivered, and now that my fantasy anthology that was going to be called Reap the Whirlwind. And, and is now going to be called Fearsome Journeys. Um, now that that's in train, I'm focused on Best of the Year 7, right? Which is relevant to this. And I've just been contracting a couple of the first stories for that, and I'm very eager this weekend to make significant progress with contracting stories for the Best of the Year, because what I desperately hope is that I will do the smart thing, Gary. Do you know what the smart thing is? What's the smart thing? Finish the damn book before I see you in uh, World Fantasy. That would be impressive. I've done it before. Well, you're talking about me being a hired gun. I mean, people hire you to you do anthologies in three weeks. Yeah, I've done a year's best in two. But I mean, that, well, that, that that's, that's a cheating lie, Gary. That's me being glib and shooting from the hip. Because you know what it means is I read for ten months and then I did the book in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like you, you couldn't do a chunky original anthology like that, but uh, the, um, the the best of the year you can put it together pretty quickly once you're used to doing it. And you know what you're doing, so yeah. Well, this is why you get asked to do stuff. It's probably why I get asked to do stuff. One of the things I was uh, I was I was writing a, a piece about George R. R. Martin for a forthcoming publication, and um, and it, it reminded me of way back in the '70s when I met George, and there was a small writers group. And the, the person who was the most active mentor I had as a critic was Aldous Butters. Yeah. And and he was he was very blustery and uh, and, and he I think unfairly his, his reputation unfairly got uh, damaged by by the association with Scientology. Although there's a fairly impressive track record of people who have actually been through that contest, and I can verify that the contest sure. is not uh, is, is not a recruiting tool. But one of the pieces of advice that AJ gave me, and he was talking about writing for corporations because he'd written for Advert. He was the PR writer for the National Pickle Federation or something. <laughs> yeah. And um, and he would always uh, get an assignment to write a press release or to write a, a report, and he'd take it home and write it, and then he'd sit on it for two weeks and send it in. And they would say, "How how how did you get this done in only two weeks? It would have taken us months." <laughs> so his piece of advice was this. 
this piece, uh, not necessarily specifically regarding writing criticism or doing anthologies, but writing for hire, he said, never let them know how fast you write. Uh huh. Because if they find that out, they won't think you're taking it seriously. You need to pretend to take as much time writing something as you believe that they would to write it on their own. <laughs> There's some wisdom in that. I have to tell you, the thing that's happened for me with my writing in terms of writing speed that bothers me is I used to be quite quick and now I'm really slow. Um, and I put it off. I mean, I was asked to write a blurb for one of my books a week and a half ago and I'm still kind of going, oh, I don't want to do that. I really don't want to do it. Um, it, uh, the, the introductions that you, you'd be aware are famously painful for me to write. Um, and yet I know that when, I remember writing columns for Locus in an evening. Oh, I've never done that. Oh, yeah. I, I'd, you know, I'd sit down with, uh, when Charles would give me these, this is back in 97, 98. Hmm. Charles would say, you ha because you're doing the kind of thing you're doing, you have to do six books. And I'm like, okay, fine. Here's your six books. So I had my six books. And I remember coming home from, from the day from, from Locus in Oakland. Uh, sitting in this little flat down on uh, Piedmont Avenue with Marianne and I'd stack the six books beside me and in about an hour and a half to two hours I'd have a full column. Wow. I, 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 am, I am really impressed by that because I, I can't do a column that fast. But I can't do it anymore. And I think I part of it is I'm not that dumb anymore. Um, I guess there's a, there, there's a sense at which... Um, when you're writing, and, and if you go back to the 90s, you go back uh, before everybody checked everything all the time, you know, every, every time I mention a title or a date or anything, I figure, okay, I better Google it and make sure it's right. Um, and I think that there was something to be said for the days in which you were writing, essentially as a journalist would write. I, mean, mm. I, worked, I worked for a newspaper for one, one year, I mean, when I was in, in college. And the thing you learn from a newspaper, and any number of people who've worked for newspapers, kept reading, said the same thing. Uh, is that, you know, it's, I was working for the morning newspaper, your deadline is midnight, that's it. You know, yeah. if you don't get it in, the paper's coming out anyway. Mm -hmm. And that means that you have to write, if you, and you get a story that comes in at 11.30, I was the obituary writer, and it frequently happened that people died at night, and you've got to get the story written and, you know, in, in print uh, in about a half hour. Mm-hmm. And that sort of habit is probably a good habit to have. I don't think anybody can afford to do that now because it's so easy to sort of check your facts and, and, and do your correction as you go along. Yeah. And that, that, that adds up to more time. I mean, well, thing for example, it's a good example, because um, I was writing a review of what I think is an amazingly brilliant science fiction novel, which will be in the October Olympics, which is my, M. John Harrison's new novel. And yeah. it's full of things that, uh, well, Mike Harrison has oddball tastes in music. Uh, let's put it that way. He likes to listen to uh, Vicente Fernandez, and he likes to listen to Rocket Dub, and he likes to listen to things that... And I thought, these are probably... I didn't know if all of them were real or not. <laughs> Just I did that, I thought, okay, I better Google every one of these things. And then and, and, and turns out they're almost all real. Um, and so, so that sort of thing slows you down because you <clears throat> want to make sure that you're not sounding uh, really dumb, which... But you tend to worry a lot about when you're reviewing John Harrison. <laughs> I think that's true. This is why we're terrified of having me on the podcast, isn't it? He's a nice guy. Uh, <laughs> can, I, can, I just say, can I just say, just to interject on the M. John Harrison thing, I'm sure he is, and I'm sure that you know the, the that little frisson of, of fear that I have about it is completely in, unfounded. And it's completely true that every time we've had somebody on the on the podcast that I thought was going to be terrifying to talk to, Caitlin Kiernan, um, they've proven to be lovely. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm absolutely sure that Mike would be fantastic. And everything I hear about Empty Space and my own reading of, of a chunk of the book is that it's a, f you know, f a fabulous p book. It's a fabulous book with a problem. I mean, it, uh, we, we don't spend a lot of time on it now because well, we, we may talk about it later um, and in that it's a sequel both to Light which got very good reception and, and to Nova Swing which got good reviews but is a less frankly less ambitious novel right. but Nova Swing is really not very closely connected to Light so it really is the end of a trilogy and it really you really benefit from having read from the, the first two novels that's my one other observation about it the other is that 
as in light, he has two timelines, one of which is near future, very realistic. It deals with three women, a, a, a woman who's actually the widow of, of, of one of the main characters in light, yep. and uh, and her daughter and her therapist. Yep. That part of it is a, it's just a brilliant mainstream novel. It's beautifully written. The characters are well, way more complex than what you see in most fiction. Not most science fiction, but in most fiction. Yep. And then there's the 25th century part of it. And one of the things that occurred to me, and I did not actually say this, um, I don't think I said it in the review, you may have actually read the review already, yeah, was that Ian Banks has this wonderful dual um, career, as as we know, <laughs> as Ian Banks and yep. Ian M. Banks. He gets wonderful love as a mainstream writer, and he gets wonderful love as a science fiction writer, both of which are well-earned. Um, but he's managed to do that by separating those two things. In a novel like... Uh, like this one from Mike Harrison, he's doing both. Yep. He's he's doing the you know brilliantly characterized, sensitive, nuanced mainstream novel with some fantastic elements, together with his his wildly imaginative 25th century thing. That is um, probably one of the reasons that Harrison is not as well known as Banks is. Yeah, you may be right. I was going to say while you were talking, something occurred to me. Um, Every now and again, we talk about different kinds of nerdvana, and a couple of years ago, you and I were at a Hugo Awards ceremony, Gary, um, and we were at the back of the party, and over in one corner, Nerdpocalypse was happening, because Neil Stevenson was in conversation with Corey Doctorow and Charlie Strauss, just informally being guys chatting. Yeah. And you thought, there's this, you know, the entire center of, in fact, I think Werner Vinge was behind them at the time, in the same group. And I was thinking, the thing that would be my equivalent would be Mike Harrison writing a culture story because to get the level of just poetry and language that um, he brings to it to the goofy kind of imagination that Banks brings to it would be phenomenal it would be like the, you know the absolute perfect piece of space opera well in, in some ways there, there, there are clear allusions um, to the to some of the culture novels, I think, in, in, in the new uh, Mike Harrison novel. I don't know how the two of them get along at all. We should, we should ask some of our friends about that. But, uh, the, 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 w w one of the sort of running jokes in the culture is, is bizarre names for spaceships, sure. for example. And, and, the, and, and empty space is full of them. You know, spaceships called Fat Mickey from Detroit. Um, and that, and that, that sort of thing. So, so, the, so the, that kind of game playing suggests to me that the two of them uh, consciously or unconsciously, may play off each other a bit. Interesting. I, I, I have to say, now, now, that, now that you've read this, are you interested in reading the Hydrogen Sonata? Um, yes, I guess so. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not talking as a your reviews editor, Gary. I'm talking as a uh, as as your podcast co-host. Hmm. Um, is it out? Uh, it's coming out. Um. In a month or two, I, I know that uh, our, our Locust colleague, Russell Letson, said it's the next thing on his bedside table to read for review, so... Um, okay, well, he's way more up on that than I am, so... And I, and I have to, just in terms of our Locust colleague, Russell, I have to uh, defer to him on a lot of hard SF things. He reads, um, probably, to be honest, a more narrow range of things than I do, but he's also literally, and I, I was thinking about this the other day because... Um, Every once in a while, when you, you you get old, you start thinking nostalgically about uh, uh, people. And Russell was the first person I really knew in the field at yeah. all. Yeah. Uh, going back forever, and uh, and, and he's uh, he's somebody who I, I respect a lot. I sometimes get a little bit uh, embarrassed at at some of the attention I get from writing reviews when Farron has been doing it. Farron Miller has been doing it longer and writing excellent reviews longer. Russell has been doing it for longer than I have. So there are a lot of good reviewers out there that I would be glad to defer to. Yeah. Well, but speaking of speaking of the of of, um, of your writing introductions quickly and speaking uh -huh, of yeah. yes, the edge of infinity, which by the way scans exactly like the end of eternity. And is a deliberate play on engineering infinity, the previous. I, book. I, I yeah. understand the allusion to engineering infinity, but I thought that if you're going to do not if you're going to do um, titles that scan. Your next one could either be uh, the end of infinity or the edge of eternity. Okay, I'll I'll try and sell both of those next week. Okay, good. So end of infinity and edge of, edge of eternity, huh? I'm writing it down. You can hear me. 
I'm going to send them off to, John, to, to, to my editor at Solaris and say, let's do these two books now. I love doing so these books, Gary. I had so much fun doing Age. But anyway, yep. Well, somebody should do a study of science fiction titles and find out whether the most common... I mean, there's probably some way to do this on one of these word frequency counters. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that Infinity is... Uh, Infinity and Eternity are two possibly of the most used titles, not only in anthologies, but in novels and story collections. Um, and they're both terms that are, in some ways, non-scientific. Oh, they aren't. What they are is they... Um... They're the kind of words that my high school English teacher would have called evocative. Yes. Because they evoke a romantic sense of, of something, you know, something bigger, something larger, without meaning anything. I mean, uh, the title to en Engineering Infinity particularly, mm -hmm. right, is an almost completely meaningless construct if you think about it for a minute. Um, and yet it kind of does give you that, to, well, gave me that hard SF feel because it had that, you know, the solid kind of engineering kind of thing alongside that big sense of wonder or infinity kind of thing. And so it kind of scans together nicely. Now, Edge of Infinity actually makes sense in terms of the book, I think. In terms of the solar system thing, and we've talked about that before. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's clearly, that's kind of a science fiction um what they used to call, actually Don Wolheim used to call the consensus cosmogony, is that you know, the outer edge of the solar system, out beyond the Earth cloud, whatever you choose, something is the dividing line between us and infinity. Yeah, it's, it's where basically, to, to put it back in traditional terms, you, you've gone out to, to, to the, you know, the, at, you know, the, the edge of the, you know, you're back 40 and you're looking uh, at, at your fence out into the rest of the country kind of thing, and that's where the frontier is. And so it is. It's yes. You go out to whatever it is, the, you know, the edge of the heliosphere, I guess. And from the edge of the, you know, the, this, our solar system's heliosphere out there, that that's the frontier. That's wildness and and everything else. And, also, hmm? as we talked before, it's also one we may not get to. Yes, and I think that's that's why I've been so encouraged by the changes in science fiction over the past two or three years, as exemplified as we keep saying about. What probably is going to be, yeah, okay, I'll, I'm going to go for it. What's probably going to be the book of the year, Gary? Um, I don't know if, if you'll go along with this, but probably at the end of the day, for science fiction at least, the banner book for 2012 is 2312. It exemplifies everything about modern science fiction the best. And it has this built into it, this idea of re-inhabiting uh, science fiction, re-inhabiting, uh, re-romanticizing, re-colonizing -re the romance of science fiction and its kind of living off our planet and and being part of a larger picture again. Because the, the, the preceding 20 years or so, that, that, that generation that goes from just before Neuromancer up until now, has been the story of looking inward, dealing with inner space, dealing with... Um, the um, singularity, all this kind of stuff, and has been turning away for very practical scientific reasons from the idea of leaving our planet. And we may never meaningfully leave the planet, Gary, physically, I think. But there's something in intensely romantic and attractive about it. And science fiction lost something when that stopped being a part of its main dialogue. And I think it's important to say, as part of the main dialogue, these stories never go away. They're always part of the field, but they've not been at the forefront you know, the main dialogue has been, as I say, cyberpunk and singularity. Now, again, all of a sudden, I mean, I'm currently reading Caliban's War by James Corey, which is one of these books. Um, and as I say, 2312, and there's a host of others. Uh, and lots of, lots of short fiction as well at the moment. This is us trying to... I, I, I can't, it's not a substantial comment to make, but it is. It's recolonizing the romance of science fiction so that we can love the future again a bit. Um, I don't know that we're ever going to love the Greg Egan idea of uploading our personalities into ingots of aluminium the size of my thumb and shooting them across the stars. But the idea that we can go to Mars and do something there, maybe go on to, to, to Jupiter and out even further, even if it's only in small ways and mechanical ways, is really engaging. And I think the thing which kicks back and links to that was the whole crazy madness of the curiosity landing a few weeks ago 
you know, mm-hmm. it, just looking at it, it was such an impro. I mean, when I even saw the animation of what they were going to attempt, I'm going, that's ridiculous. That's never going to work. And they carried it off without a hitch, pretty much. And that just gives you emotional faith in the whole idea. It's, it's yeah. I guess it's one of a, one of two ways of approaching stories like this because I was thinking about your idea and I want to come back to that. Yeah. Uh, when I was reading uh, the M. John Harrison novel, which is clearly set on a far distant planet on this city called Sadat, and and he's he's, he's got he's got his physics worked out well. Yeah. But by and large, he doesn't. You don't ask the question reading the novel of how do we get from here to there because this this you know interstellar setting is. Is Harrison space? It's, it's 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 space that works for the for the sake of the narrative, and I guess what I'm doing is making a distinction between what you're talking about, which is essentially um, achievable technology science fiction or, or uh, achievable exploration versus metaphoric exploration. Mm-hmm. You don't really care when you're reading a really good space opera, yeah. Uh, reading something that's a lot of fun, whether you're reading an Al Reynolds or you're reading a Peter Hamilton, who's I got another several pounds of him in the mail this week. <laughs> um, and but he does this very well. Um, and, and the adventure isn't lost by simply asking how we can get from here to there. That's yep. a different kind of question from the one that uh, Stan Robinson is asking in 2312. So the, the science fiction, the old-fashioned science fiction that you grow up thinking, I can do that when I'm older. I was talking to my granddaughter a couple of weeks ago, and she was just suddenly getting interested in Mars and, and because I pointed out to her in the sky, and she said, I want to go there. Yeah. And I remember thinking that. You get into science fiction by thinking, yeah, I can do that. I can live in that world. I can be there. Um, and obviously there isn't any way where you can figure out you're going to uh, you know, live on a planet 130 light years away. There's, there, there's no way of saying, I can do that. Uh, but metaphorically, it's still a great story. There's nothing to keep writers from doing that. The question I wanted to get back to, though, since you spoke of uh, Neuromancer and you spoke of the sort of um, well, pulling back into the solar system is something achievable. Uh, that's what you characterized, if I don't mind my giving a preview of the introduction. <laughs> what you started off that introduction, I think, by saying, welcome to the fourth generation of science fiction. This yeah. is the fourth generation you're talking about, then. Yes, yes, it is. I mean, I have to say that... Yeah, sorry? What, what are the first three? Okay. Well, I guess, roughly... <laughs> It would be the uh, the, the pulp fiction, you know, the, the pulp fiction roots of science fiction in the '40s, the maturing of the new wave and and everything in the '60s, uh, cyberpunk and everything in the '80s and '90s, and now this. Okay, it, it, so it, essentially it, you're talking you're talking about the fourth generation of science fiction as a self-aware field. Yeah, yeah. Okay, where well, there's a community, there's a bunch of writers that know each other, the people who read all this stuff. Yep. So you're not really going back before 1926. Right? No, 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 no. That, 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 that would take research, Gary. Mm. Uh, and also, I mean, it, it also comes from a, a comment that I made in the previous book, Engineering Infinity, where at that point I was saying, you know, there's this idea that science fiction had gone through its its youth, its adolescence, and moved into adult, adulthood, and that we're in this sort of crazy post-scarcity period now where everything is rich and diverse and there's a fiction coming everywhere. No one can read it or no one can, can keep track of it. That was what initially made me think of this idea of this, these different generations of the field. Um, and it was when I was tinkering with this book that it became clear to me that you know, this, this latest thing, this thing that 2312 and its cohort are, are also a kind of fourth generation of science fiction, where, where it is, as I was saying, this, this sort of Re, re-embracing practical romantic confluence for the, of of a future where we can have industrialized colonized solar system and us out in it and all this kind of thing. So yeah, I don't have anything deep to say about it, Gary. Well, no, is it, is it, that's deep enough. Uh, it's fine. I, I, I wonder if it's a rebooting rather than uh, a re-embracing because. Uh, what I'm curious about, and I've not seen it, and I don't even know when it's coming out, it'd be the next novel in uh, the Blue Remembered Earth sequence. Yes. Because the first novel would clearly fits the definition of what you're talking about. It, it, it does all kinds of wonderful things with the solar yes, system. Yes, yes. And, and yet somebody is zooming out of the solar system at the end of it. And, and you wonder, okay, is, is, is what Reynolds wants to do 
to, to resituate us in the solar system and start from there. In other words, is the solar system something we're retreating to or is it something we're rebooting as a new starting point for something else? I don't think that's clear yet. I mean, I, I know that you're sort of asking kind of theoretically because obviously none of us have read uh, the, you know, the next book. He's only just, I think, pretty much finished the mm. next uh, Blue Remembered Earth book. I saw the title announced somewhere or other. Uh, he and I were tweeting about it. Uh, but um, I don't know. It will be interesting to see because Al, along with... Um, with uh, with Paul Macaulay has become one of the you know the two most interesting science fiction writers in this area, in terms of you know looking at you know the, 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 this world and you, you could argue in fact that Macaulay is the guy who's done most over the last short while for this, you know with his Quiet War stuff. I yeah, with the Quiet War stuff. Although you know, in in a sense, if you go back, if you if you look at this. Um, Sort of rediscovery of the solar system, and and you mentioned again in your introduction, you obviously mentioned Stan Robinson's Mars trilogy, but uh, it's, it's interesting that when when that was coming out, there were a bunch of Mars books. There was Greg Bear's Moving Mars, and there was Macaulay's, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that tied directly to the generations of research coming back and information coming back from probes and everything that was happening, as you know, you know, because they were just in the middle of processing all of the information from. Okay, I'm going to be ignorant, and it's, I'm doing it off the top of my, my head. Whichever the set of pr probes were that were making it clear that Mars was not exactly the kind of place to raise your kids. Um, and that was dominating you know, the, the change of view of the, of, of, of the red planet from, obviously, the Edgar Rice Burroughs planetary romance thing to what Stan Robinson does. That's interesting. I'm, I'm, one thing I'm, I'm just going to be very interesting to see how it's dealt with in science fiction over the next five years is terraforming. I, I think that's going to come back uh, as well because as we move into the solar system, there's a question that you know, rises of uh, how are we going to actually live there. Um, uh -huh. Stan, Stan's idea of terraria is interesting, though you wonder whether it's ever technically feasible. Um, and red Mars and green Mars, blue Mars were built around this idea that you're going to take 300 years, you're going to pound the surface of the planet with ice comets and all this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And again, you wonder, like, is that actually, you know, doable? Are we going to, like, look at this again and sort of see, well, what... If we can get past... Okay, if we can get past the challenge of physically getting somewhere, how do we make it desirable and livable? You know, uh, it, there's a story that Ian MacDonald wrote for me a few years ago, a couple of years ago. A story called Digging, which you may or may not recall, Gary, because I, I think you've read it. That. Yeah, which is basically going to the you know, the lowest uh, uh, area on Mars and excavating even further, so the low pressure air would all fall or you know, would all fall all fall into it, and then you could inhabit that area. Um, but the question will be, what are the nooks and crannies that you could make practically livable? Because I know I could make myself unpopular on this podcast by because we talk to people who love science fiction and scientific ideas. That every time I, I look at the the, you know, the the images that come back from curiosity, I go, it's awesome, it's spectacular, but it doesn't look like somewhere I want to go. So you know that's got to come in. This reason for why we're going to get off the planet and. Uh, also, sort of the other side of the terraforming thing, which is where you have, again, Stan Robinson in 2312 basically shows Earth as being a bit of a wreck. And aren't yeah. we going to sort of terraform Earth ultimately to make it, you know, to, to fix the well, problems well, here? Isn't it going to be easier to fix here than go there? So. Earth becomes one of the more difficult problems in terraforming because it's been so ruined by that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, 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 think, I, I think you're right, except I think if, if the story digging, if I remember it, if I remember it correctly, it has kind of a downer of an ending. Um, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me the ending of that is that basically they decide to stop funding this project. Well, yes. And that strikes me as being a kind of dose of realism that I don't see in almost any of this, which is uh, when you, going back to Stan Robinson's uh, Terraforming Mars, um, the, the technology, it's not that difficult to imagine if you got a really good imagination Sure. how, to, how you could technologically achieve these things. Very few people have addressed the issue of how you would economically afford to do these things. Uh, and there seems to be an assumption behind a lot of this uh, solar system based science fiction that at some point Earth society will become prosperous enough that we can actually afford to spend quadrillions of dollars uh, to, to do things like, uh, like imagine what it would cost uh, in today's dollars to build a single terrarium in the way oh, sure. uh, Robinson does. It's, 
how it's difficult for me to imagine the economics of Earth, which basically has an economic engine that can't support ourselves already. Yeah, well, yes, I mean, the, the, the description of the construction of the ter- terraria is almost glib, if you know what I mean. I don't want to be like, that sounds too terrible about Stan, but it's this thing where you sort of go, well, you know, go get yourself an asteroid about, you know, yay big, hollow it out, run a core through it that's got, you know, that has an engine on one end and a, uh, you know, a, a helm on the other and that, that'll, you know, have lights down the middle of it and then spin the thing up to speed and then start whacking in soil and all this other stuff. And you go, yep, and you go, yep, 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 but oh my God, that's not simple, Gary. None of that is simple. No. Uh, and, and, and I think there's almost a deliberate... <sighs> I think goodness is probably not accidental because he presents that at one at one point where the terraria are first being explained by somebody to somebody else in almost exactly those terms. Uh, you do this and then you do that. And, yep. you do, and, and nobody uh, asks, where do you get the money to do that? Uh, it's, in other words, if you look at the solar system as a set of raw resources... It's a spectacular set of resources. We can do this with Io. We can do that with Venus. We can do this with, even with Mercury. Um, how do we get the money to do that is something that, by and large, I don't think gets asked very often. No. And, no. And, and what is the money not being used for in order to finance that? I mean, one, one, one of the questions that comes up again and again, uh, and somebody pointed this out, it was, a, it was a, some online debates about uh, the Curiosity mission as well. Uh, should we be spending that money on that instead of, you know, starving people in Africa and so forth and so on? Somebody pointed out, okay, it costs, I don't know, two and a half billion dollars or something, and the United States spends, I think, seven billion dollars on potato sure, chips. Sure, and, and also they, they always point, with some justification, to uh, the economic and scientific benefits that come from doing these things. In other words, they're not you don't obviously get X or Y from it, but you end up getting it... Uh, as, as a side effect, in effect. And I think that's where it pays for it, and it has technically over the years. Well, there, 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 there's, a, there's a connection in a weird way between um, Stan Robinson's uh, Washington trilogy, you know, 40 degrees below or 50 degrees below, or 40 signs of rain, 50 degrees below, 60... I forget. Uh, because what's happening to the Earth in that series is, uh, uh, is a prefiguration of what Earth has become by 2312. Uh, so the things make make some sense, uh, but the in, in other words, if you look at, at, at uh, ecology as a kind of system, Stan seems to be making the argument, and we should get him back on and ask him yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah. Right. Um, he's writing and, a new book. Well, uh, I he told so. me. He told me this week he's writing a new book. Excellent. Um, mm. But one of the things I think he's saying is that the the, the most problematical terraforming job in 2312 is what might have to be done to Earth. And I think he's building this argument that, that, that the idea of terraforming technology might be a good idea in Mars in X number of years or, or, or in the, you know, uh, some of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, but it might be a kind of technology that which will eventually we will need to stay alive on this planet. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that, that's good. He does, and I think that's a, that's a compelling point, a, a co- compelling practical point. I mean, the point where all of this stuff that we're talking about, though, I think, melds with something like Neil Stevenson's Prometheus Project, is it? Um, hieroglyph. Hieroglyph Project. Is that um, it's another way of freeing up science fiction to dream about bigger practical, bigger things and to allow it to connect to our day-to-day worlds as well. And that's why I think it's, it's fantastic. Well, but by the same token, you could say, you mentioned about, you know, Greg Egan's idea of our uploading yeah, ourselves. Yeah. Uh, in, in a sense, from Greg Egan's point of view, he's looking at that as something that could be achieved. Um, uh, that that would be interesting. It's unfortunate that someone like Greg would not do a podcast like this, because I would love to talk to him about it. Um, I, I wonder whether he really actually considers the uploading of human intelligence into mechanical devices to be really a feasible thing. I don't know, but feasible, um, there are two questions. Feasible um, is one question, and I think that he could probably argue, and probably people who know far more about this than I could uh, could argue, probably Werner Vinci could argue this, that you can see how it could become feasible. Yeah. You, you, you could see how the uh, 
the, the, the sort of information structure of the human brain could be transferred to something uh, maybe even more efficient. Uh, whether it would happen or whether anybody would want it to happen is, a, is, is another issue. Uh, there was a classic book um, on technology. I used to read stuff, and I'm not up on this anymore. But back in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of studies of technology. And one of them was a book by Herbert Miller called, a, uh, I think, The Children of Frankenstein. Um, and one of the critiques he was making in that, if I recall correctly, was that it's a fallacy not necessarily specifically to science fiction, but the fallacy among a lot of scientists that if we can think of a way to do something, anything, it will be done. In other mm -hmm. words, that people will act on any possible technology um, that, that's, that's evolved. And I don't know that that's true. I don't know that historically there's a lot of evidence to support that. I think you're right. I think the idea just because we're enthusiastic about it, it will happen, is mm -hmm. somewhat naive. And it's nice in terms of constructing stories, but I don't think it's realistic in terms of the uh, the way the world really works. You know, just because you do build it, it does not mean they will come. Right, and it doesn't mean necessarily that anybody wants you to build it. I mean, what, it's one of the issues that comes up again. Again, it's, it's interesting when you look at the difference, for example, yeah. Uh, between the way clones are treated in science fiction yep. and the way clones are treated in mainstream fiction. Yes. Uh, by mainstream fiction, I mean things like Never Let Me Go or uh, oh, they're, well, not quite mainstream. It's something like Michael Marshall Smith's Spares. Uh, the, the idea is that this is a technology which, or, or what, there was uh, a Michael Crichton novel. The idea in the mainstream is that this is a technology which probably will become available and is absolutely horrifying if we act on it. The assumption of science fiction seems to be generally that, horrifying or not, we're going to act on it. Somebody's going to do this. Um, it's going to be, you know, it, it'll, it, the boys from Brazil, I guess, is one of the most popular mainstream But But is that just because that's a good way of constructing fiction? A good way of telling stories? It's a good way of constructing thrillers. I mean, my, my distinction, yeah. uh, I, I always like to use Michael Crichton as a whipping boy, which is too bad because he's dead. Um, and, and you hate to pick on people who are dead, but, but Michael Crichton, <laughs> well, during his career, he, he reinvented, uh, repackaged um, a number of science fiction tropes, which science fiction writers had been dealing with for years, as mainstream thrillers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, Prey was, I think Prey was the title of his nanotech novel. Um, mm -hmm. And in every case, it's, it's a horrible threat by these conspiring scientists and probably some secret government operatives to do things that are just utterly despicable and horrible and so forth and so on. Um, his version of um, nanotechnology is that you shut it down the minute you find it. My God, if we can contain this to this laboratory and um, uh, wherever that laboratory is, or, or Sphere, or even going back to his first uh, big success, uh, Andromeda Strain. All yeah. these things... You, you, can, you can contain them, you can keep them from getting out. Uh, contrast that with something like Greg Bear's Blood Music, which basically makes the assumption that most science fiction writers would tend to make, which is that it's going to get out. It's going yes. to change the world. It's, it's, it's not containable. Change is not containable is one of the messages that science fiction has. And one of the messages that the mainstream thriller has is, yes, it is. <laughs> it's true. Fundamentally true. <sighs> There you go. So I don't know. So so, so to get back to your uh, to your introduction, right? Uh, is, is the fourth generation is uh, a more realistic approach to science fiction? It's not quite what you'd call mundane. Yeah. Yes, uh, it's two things. It's that. It's also I confess to you, um, a feverish brain's absolute <laughs> panicked response to coming up with something for an introduction again, Gary. <laughs> You know, it's when when you have to. I don't want to downplay it. I'm, I'm always wary about introductions and sort of to get you know fractionally meta for a second about it. Um, what always worries me is that we say that people will look back on the introductions and see them for some kind of you know, historical and critical context, and a bunch of them plainly are never intended for that. Uh, some of them are just a little sort of hi, we're in a book and let's get out of your way so you can enjoy it. And there's an element, I guess, of that here. Um, I mean, I've done, I think Age of Infinity will be book 51. Wow. Yeah, I think. I would have to actually look it up. 
Um, but it's something like that. And when you get to that stage, you're going, I don't know what to say next, Gary. You know? I feel, hey, like, I, I've said it, I feel like I've said it all a hundred times. Well, I mean, but, but you know, every book has its own audience. I mean, you're going to have people who have never read it before. Not everybody's read everything. Well, yeah. And, and look, and I expect that the Engineering Infinity audience will be the Edge of Infinity audience. And actually, no, it's book 49. That's where you go. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm still very impressed. I think one of the things that um, uh, that you underestimate is how much your own introductions, and I, th- I think everybody underestimates this. I, mean, I am somebody who's very fond of reading introductions. I like reading story introductions. Yep. I like reading afterwards that authors write to their own stories. I like writing, reading story notes and so forth and so on, even when they're not very informative, because it gives me a sense of context. It gives me a sense of you know, where this book is. Uh, coming from what specific niche of science fiction it illustrates, and I'm I'm very fond of theme anthologies. I think the person, if I'm not mistaken, the person who probably invented the science fiction theme anthology was Groff Conklin, um, okay. because he did he did anthologies with titles like Invaders from Space, Thinking mm-hmm. Machines. Thinking Machines was a pretty forward-looking anthology for 1953 or 54, whatever it was. Yep, uh, and. In, in every one of those things, uh, all, all you expected of the introduction was, "This is what these stories are about." This is yeah. this, this is the you know, field of the, the quarter of the field in science fiction that we're talking about here, and a little bit of discussion about how this kind of writing, this uh, the kind of writing represented in this book, wasn't invented by me or these authors. It's part of something that's been going on, and you yep. do this in your introduction to uh, Edge of Infinity. So for a reader who's, let's say, entering science fiction, it's not only that you're getting a bunch of stories and you realize this is not the whole of science fiction being represented. It's one theme, one focus, one uh, set of assumptions. Uh, but you're also getting a sense that, okay, if I like that sort of corner of the field, then there are all these other things related to it. And, uh, and I, I think there very well might be people out there, I, I'm sure there are people out there, who really can't stand grand space operas. But we'd yeah. like to have some common sense engineering, John yeah. W. kind of science fiction. I'm sure they read analog. Yeah, and but by the same token, there are people who get bored with all the science stuff and say, "Just give me yes. a planet, you know, um, you know, we'll yeah. set it on." Well, if, well, you know, I mean, if, if if you read science fiction and if you got reasonably, well, not even reasonably broad, slightly broad tastes, every now and again you just crave a different flavor. I mean, I'm reading Caliban's Wake because I wanted a big adventure science fiction novel. And I'd read Leviathan's Wake, so Cabin's Ward, and I read Leviathan's Wake, and I read it for that reason too. I was craving it after I'd read, you know, but once I'd read Leviathan's Wake, I wanted to read something else. And so you go to small scale, tightly focused, beautifully written stories, and then up to big epic grand stories, and suddenly you want to read a trashy fantasy novel or something. Um, because that, that's what we do, I think. Well, that's what, you, that's what you and I do. I, I, I think that there are a lot of readers out there and the readers who might make the marginal difference between a writer's success in terms of sales who do like to read one thing. Yeah. There are people who want grand space opera. There are people who are just delighted to see Leviathan's Wake come along because there hadn't been enough of that sort of thing in American science fiction. Uh, and there are other people who want to read uh, very literary cross-genre science fiction that you can barely tell it's science fiction. Uh, I, I, and there are a large number of us like you and, and me, I think, who will read everything and if it's really well done, uh, enjoy it. I was thinking, uh, the extreme example, away from the big uh, genre-oriented space opera, or or, 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 let's say conventional science fiction, um, was something I was thinking about, and it's because I read a story which uh, will be out shortly by by our mutual friend, Ellen Plages, which might have been a science fiction story Yes, but you didn't have to read it that way, and mm. so I came up with this concept, which I which I like, except I can't <laughs> think of three or four examples right now. Yep. Of, of what I call trapdoor genre stories. A trapdoor genre story is one that reads or could be read and might be read uh, completely as a mainstream story, uh, but there would be a sentence or a paragraph or even a word somewhere that opens the door to this being a genre story. Classic example is uh, the Pelican Bar. Yeah, by Karen and by Karen, Karen Joy Fowler, uh, which she clearly believes to be a science fiction story. I believe it to be a science fiction story, but there's literally, as I as I recall, one line of dialogue in it that invites you to read it that way. 
You know what we should do, Gary? Wow. And I don't want to like completely veer off for a second. We should get that line and we should put it on a on a Cood Street coffee mug, because it is the ultimate Cood Street story, isn't it? In a way, it is because we've talked about story probably as much as any other single story. Um, yep. And and I'm very fond of it, but it's uh, like I say, uh, Ellen Clayton's new story has a line like that. There, I read some story within the last few days that does the same thing. Um, and, and, and why does it, why is it important to do that? Why is it important uh, to use Karen Fowler again uh, to recognize Sarah Canary as a science fiction first contact story when I would be willing to guess more than half the people that read it don't see it that way? Well, I mean, yeah. Um, I, I guess just because it shows you uh, the infinite possibility of, of, of the field, the way uh, you can see everything overlapping. I mean, the fact that the line, I think the line... Well, it's actually a little section of the story. It's not just one line because it's where well, where Mama Strong is talking to Nora, and it's about whether they're human or not. Yeah. Mama Strong uses the phrase "you humans always do this." this no, 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 she doesn't. She says you're wrong about humans. You know, humans do everything we did. Humans do more. Right. You're right. Okay. And this is uh, the men walk past. Uh, they walk right past her as they, as they walk. They began to sing. Maybe they were human, and maybe not. Very pretty world, said Mama Strong. Mm-hmm. And leaves it ambiguous. But you're right. You put that story into a science fiction book, and that's the nail that puts it on the board that says it's science fiction. Because look, she's talking about humans as being not her. She's talking about you know the Earth from an outside perspective, pretty, very pretty world, uh, as though she's experienced got some experience in some other world. You know, so... And you put that in the mainstream anthology, and you're going to have. I am looking forward to the time when actually I can actually teach that story because one of the things that happens when you teach stories to students who don't normally read science fiction, they will fight every possible way they can to avoid seeing it as science fiction. And I think what I would get from my students with that line, with Mama Strong saying that, is, that, oh, this reveals that Mama Strong is herself psychotic and has psychological problems, and that explains her behavior. <laughs> and you're going, no, really? And you're going, no, no, it's not. But, but the point is, and Karen Fowler is a sophisticated enough writer to know to leave it ambiguous. Can I just say the world is too too strange, Gary? Now, you might say, why? I'll give you two, two, two reasons why the world is strange. First of all, and it, it, it's a little segue, but it sits, it sits with reading perspective. Uh, as I'm sitting here talking to you, you'll have heard me. I've had my keyboard going again, checking a little bit, a bit of information. And Facebook is in front of me, right? Sounds rude. And my my mother, my 74-year-old Belfast-born mother, just uh, has just tweeted that she's reading my book under my hat and has read okay. the first stories and the first four stories in the book and is loving it. This is my, my mother who also loves Ted Chang. Um, really? Yes. Loved The Merchant of the Alchemist Gate. Thought it was one of the best stories she's ever read. But she really did like Maeve Binchy's books a lot, too. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a bit of distance between Maeve Binchy and, and, and Ted Chang, Gary. It's a strange reading world. It is. Uh, and uh, by the way, is your mom, where does your mother live now? Uh, about a 10-minute drive from here. Okay, so she's close to you. Uh-huh. Yeah, she was over at the house yesterday, and I, she wanted a copy of of the book for her shelf. For, oh, I thought she was going to put it, you know, on the shelf and go, look, my son did another book. Um, because she's my mom and mums do that thing. But oh, yeah. no, she's, she's reading it and she's going, she's really liking it, which is really interesting. I mean, it, it's a great book. And it's also interesting because the publisher told me they're going to put a, a new, new cover on it to make it look more adult when it comes out in paperback, which is interesting. Well, that's interesting. I, mean, um, I know, we're segueing. And the other segue is, Gary, just quickly, before you even get a chance to say something deeply meaningful... Yeah, Charles Tan worked out that our average podcast length is 66 minutes. He, and he also compared us to the average length of other Australian podcasts. I mean, Charles is now the world authority on Australian podcasts, which is probably not going to get him invited to dinner a lot. But I'm <laughs> grateful that he did that work because I think we came out looking succinct. Yes. I think 66 minutes uh, is, 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 is a good length. It's at this point that I, I tactfully point out we're at the 54-minute mark. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm watching the time myself. Or, or, does that mean that we're now limited to 66 minutes? No, because the last one we did with, with Ket, you know, Jim and John uh, ran over that by some, some margin. 
So, no, I don't think we have to be limited by our own thing, but it's also part of the form. It's the challenge now, Gary. Mm-hmm. Ram- ramble aimlessly for 66 minutes and stop. Though we've been doing pretty good for off the cuff this morning for the flu. Yeah, you've got the flu. You're sounding sounding like you're getting better as we're talking. Actually, your your introductions sound a little sounded a little hoarse. <laughs> yeah, I've shifted the phlegm around a bit. I'm also supposed to be going out this afternoon. I'm going to see our locust colleague Amelia Beamer for lunch. Oh, wonderful! Say hello to Amelia. I shall. Now, speaking of locust colleagues and segueing from all that stuff that we've just abandoned, and that mm. stuff which I think frankly bemused Genevieve Valentine when she was on our podcast, Gary. You know, the abrupt left terms where we just drop stuff we were talking about and go and do something else. She seemed to enjoy. <sighs> she did. She was lovely. Uh, it was great having her on the podcast. And maybe we'll, we'll have her on again. Maybe um, if she's in Toronto. I forget what she said. I think she said she was. So maybe we'll talk to her there. She is. But um, you're getting ready to pack up, Gary. Not in 12 minutes, but pick. Well, not pack up. You're not packing up. You're sitting in your bar. Packing But everybody's packing up to come and spend time with you. Apart from me, who was maliciously maladvised and now won't be in Chicago um, for, for, for Worldcon, even though this is the day I would have flown out, Gary. Yeah, I promised to personally ruin Worldcon so that you won't miss anything. Oh, good man. Does, yeah, does, see, does, I will trash that sucker. Fantastic. Does that mean you're going to show up at the Hugo ceremony and then actually diddle the votes to make sure we don't win anything and the whole deal? I'm, 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 I'm working my way into that right now. What I'm trying to do now is clean up my apartment. I have possibly as many as five people staying here on three <laughs> um, and, uh, and and you know and lunch and dinner plans and so forth and so on. Uh, it's it's like it's, it's what I've said about every other convention. It's what it's not what happens in the panels that makes a convention worthwhile. It's nice if you go to interesting panel discussions, and there will undoubtedly be some brilliant panel discussions. Yes. But you've got an awful lot of people that you don't get to see very often in a nice city with lots of nice restaurants and museums and galleries and stores and things. Um, and that part I always said to you was going to be fun. Oh well, yes, you did. But you 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 did. You kept saying. I don't know. I couldn't justify two trips. But there is that part of me I've been saying all week to my family. You realize this Saturday, this one, based on every other trip I've taken, I would have flown out this Saturday. I would have spent tonight having dinner with people in Sydney. Tomorrow I would have been in the Bay Area staying with Alan Clagis and maybe going up to see the people at Locus. And I would have been in Chicago by about Tuesday of next week or Wednesday of next week. And then there would have been the convention and then I'd have come home. Oh well. If I were you, I would I would make emergency plans now to fly out tomorrow. I'd just cancel everything, pay whatever the ticket costs, um, and 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 then get here. And, and and having spent tens of thousands of dollars to get here. Yeah. Uh, and then you get to lose a Hugo. Is that worth it? Oh, you don't think of it like that, Gary. You can't. That's a mad comment. You should be ashamed. Drink more wine. I, no, I mean really, really think you don't lose a Hugo. You. You gain a nomination. You know that. Well, okay. Anybody who talks about losing a Hugo deserves a smack. No, you're absolutely right. Although, it was one of the things... Keep in mind, the Hugo Losers Party, which I only remembered the other day by looking it up, was invented by... George Martin. And Gardner. Yeah, George and Gargi. Uh, yeah, so, 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 so to some extent, Hugo losing is a much more widespread and honorable tradition than Hugo winning is. You say, yes, it's absolutely true. Right up until the moment you win one, you believe that's true. Yeah, and there's a certain distinction uh, that comes in, in, in not winning a Hugo. I'm not, I, I'm not even trying to handicap those Hugos. I mean, I, I think we could. There is, there is one thought, though, that I'd send out from the podcast to every fellow Hugo nominee out there. And you know what that thought is, Gary? Mm. Somewhere in a room in Chicago, all of the statuettes have been engraved already and are ready to go. Yes, right. So there you go. And there was something I was going to talk about this podcast, but since we're currently sitting at 59 minutes and 15 seconds, I'm not sure we're going to sneak it in. Got seven minutes to go. We're okay. And and what it is is it has to do with, in fact, next year's Hugo Awards. Mm-hmm. And you might say, oh my gosh, why would we be talking about the San Antonio Hugo Awards? Good question, Gary. It's because stuff coming out this year will be eligible, and there's yes. something which has not been eligible this year which will be eligible next year. Our colleague at Locus, Mark R. Kelly Esquire, editor of Locus Online, and uh, founder of the 
just indefatigably, crazily, astoundingly useful and brilliant SF Awards database has redeveloped it, Gary. There is a yes, version of it absolutely. at sfadb.com. And it's brilliant and it's terrific and it deserves everybody's support. And I use it constantly, as I'm sure you do. And it is eligible for the Hugo next year. I'm sure of it, if I understand how things work. Uh, and it won't be again in the future because it's, it's only when it's a new thing, right? Because then it's an ongoing iteration. So I'm, hoping, I guess so, yeah. so I'm hoping they're counting this as being an eligible iteration. Just as this year, uh, the SF Encyclopedia is eligible, but next year it won't be, and into future years it won't be, right? That's correct. So... Uh, the, and, and what, what I hadn't, I never said this to you at the beginning of the podcast, I was actually going to segue from this and endorsing the, the, the new version of the awards database and saying how useful I think it is and the, about the quality of the information and everything else into a discussion of amateur the tradition of amateur criticism and review in the science fiction field. But maybe, we can, sorry, maybe we can hold that topic for a podcast after Worldcon. No, you, were, you, you dropped out for a minute, and I didn't hear what the topic was. Oh, amateur criticism and review in science fiction, the whole tradition of it. What, what, do, what do you mean by amateur? Uh, uh, amateurs are probably fan-based. You know, everything that, I mean, uh, William Atheling's writings, you know, James Blish's writings, Damon Knight's writings, the, the whole history of um, fan-originated criticism and review, which is kind of infor more, more informal and whatever else, rather than academically based. Does that make sense? Well, I suppose there are probably three kinds of criticism, actually. Fan, I mean, when I think of fan criticism, and I think you're right that when uh, Blish and, and Knight were writing essentially for fanzines, they weren't getting paid, as far yeah. as I know. Uh, so that means unpaid reviewing. That's everybody still, right? In a literal sense, you do out of the love of it. Um, which is historically the beginnings of science fiction criticism. It overlaps with criticism that's professional criticism that you get paid for because, uh, well, for example, people like Joanna Russ and A.J. Budras wrote review columns, yeah. uh, Charles Dillon does, and got paid for them. Uh, so that's professional reviewing that comes out of a kind of amateur base. Yes. Uh, second kind of criticism, which uh, doesn't get as widely circulated as, as, as the others, but I, I know because I'm in academia, is academic criticism. Yep. You don't get paid for it, but you get some credit if you're a somewhere and you publish something. Um, so there's some benefit to be derived from it. The third category, which is the one that seems to be proliferating, proliferating wildly in the last 10 years, are people who are just putting up their own websites, writing their own sure. reviews, uh, doing the things, some of which is absolutely brilliant, some of which is fascinating. Uh, I, I, I found, I mean, all the times from the beginning of, for example, Karen Burnham's Spiral Galaxy, when she was rereading the classics of the field for the first time, mostly for her, I thought it was fascinating to just watch somebody discover science fiction. Mm, sure, sure. Contextualize it. In the so that kind of thing, it seems to me, is the largest, the, certainly the largest amount of criticism and commentary on the field that's out there now is being written out of sheer love or sure. passion, passion for the field, but not getting paid for. Yeah, and, and that also touches on things like, I forget the guy's name, I'm ashamed, the, the Tasmanian guy who wrote the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction back in the 50s. Tuck, Tuck Donald Tuck. Yeah. You know, that sort of stuff. And there's a grand tradition, and I think in some ways the SF uh, Awards database is in that tradition. And that's something we could talk about in some other 66 minutes. I will say one thing about Mark's database, going back to when it was assembly the locust database mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I used to do this being an obsessive academic it's just I want to find things wrong <laughs> I mean I found things wrong in the science fiction encyclopedia I've never caught I've never caught Mark up on anything I have. he has words that I've never heard of he has uh, a, you, know, you always you always check yourself first of all yeah he, he doesn't miss a nomination I don't know how he's been able to keep up all this, all these years, again, with a full-time day job like I know, you have. I, I did catch him up on some of the Australian ones at one point, but not anymore. Um, it's very impressive, and I, I have to say, it's, it's also... <laughs> you know, I've now got to the stage where if I don't remember... You know, I, I never remember what I've been nominated for, Gary, which sounds arrogant, and I'm sure you don't either. Uh, so I go back to um, Mark's database to look it up. 
I now consider he's a better re- reference for my information about me than I am. So. I believe probably I I, I I could say the same thing. Anyway. Anyway. 64 minutes and 56 seconds, Gary. In honor we of Charles Tan, let's keep it to 66 minutes this week. Okay. We have, what, 60 seconds right now. Something like that. At which point I'm going to say this. I hope you have a ball in uh, this coming week at, at World Fantasy, at WorldCon. I hope everybody does. I hope you have fantastic meals at the world's most expensive restaurants with our colleagues and friends. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that the Hugo Awards ceremony is the best one ever and that everybody comes away as happy as they possibly could be. That we get to record a batch of fantastic interviews if we can over the next week because we need to cover for the world fantasy break, Gary. Um, Or we're going to be having to do some catch-up over the coming weeks, uh, coming months because that's going to be interesting. And that it's all just brilliant and that I'll get to talk to you next week. We hope we'll talk next weekend. Uh, We'll be talking to you either from the... um hotel at uh, the world con or i will have drive people back to my apartment here sounds brilliant yeah we will do something okay take good care my friend and break a leg okay talk to you soon bye